Attention, we the people listeners, become a member of the National Constitution Center at the $125 or more level by July 31st, and you'll receive a thrilling free signed copy of my new book, Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. So make your gift today and in the process become a member of the National Constitution Center and all the great work that we do. Just email membership at constitutioncenter.org and let me know how you'd like me to sign the book. I will send it to you with the greatest pleasure. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. On today's show, we continue our series on political parties and the Constitution, with a deep dive on the history of the Republican Party. Formed in the wake of the Whig Party's breakup in the mid-1800s, the Republican Party held its first national convention in 1856. Since then, the party has been home to many of our greatest presidents, among them Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan, and has played an important role in shaping our understanding of the Constitution. Joining me to discuss the constitutional history of the GOP are two experts on American history and constitutional law. David French is a constitutional lawyer and staff writer at the National Review and former president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. David participated in a great symposium on religious liberty at the Constitution Center last fall. You can watch that program on constitutioncenter.org or listen on our companion podcast, live at America's Town Hall. And Michael Gerhardt is the Samuel Ash Distinguished Professor in Constitutional Law, as well as scholar in residence here at the National Constitution Center. You can find the many programs Mike has been part of at constitutioncenter.org and on all of our great media platforms. David, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. Uh, David, let's jump right in. How did the Republican Party form? What was the relationship of the newly formed Republican Party to the existing major parties at the time, the Democrats and the Whigs? Well, you know, the Republican Party can't be, the founding of the Republican Party can't be divorced from the argument over slavery. Um, you know, it, just, it, it, it was formed in the run-up to the Civil War, and it was uh, a re reaction really against the Democrats, reaction against the Whigs, and presented a place uh, and a home where it presented a home for abolitionists, and it presented a home not just for abolitionists, but also for people who, uh, although they may not have been for abolition in the moment, so and Abraham Lincoln comes to mind in that in that regard, were definitely opposed to the spread of slavery. And so the early Republican Party, you know, if you're looking at it from a constitutional perspective, um, it's not going to have been defined early on by uh, you know, many of the other constitutional values that we talk about, say, like religious liberty that's so contentious today, but much more uh, grounded in uh, opposition to involuntary servitude. Um, and, and, you know, uh, had a constitutional component to it as well, uh, in particular, you know, reaction against the Dred Scott ruling, uh, which was uh, one of, you know, the Supreme Court's most notorious constitutional abominations. But you can't think about the early Republican Party without thinking about its reaction to slavery. Thanks so much for reminding us of the constitutional vision at the heart of the foundation of the Republicans. Mike, uh, some more details. Please talk about what the Whigs stood for, how they broke up, what factions they broke into, and how the Republican Party emerged. 
Sure, I, and I, certain, I certainly agree that anti-slavery was a critical tenet of this sort of newly forming Republican Party, uh, which, as you pointed out, uh, uh, consisted in part of uh, former Whigs. So the Whig Party had been formed in a relatively um, inept uh, attempt to be a response to the Democratic Party, particularly the rise of Andrew Jackson and the, and the Democratic Party's success under Andrew Jackson and his successor, uh, Martin Van Buren. And so the Whigs, to some extent, existed in part just to oppose Jackson. They also existed to some extent to support Henry Clay, one of their great leaders in Congress, and his ultimately failed attempts to become president. And to some extent, it was uh, an attempt to create an umbrella for a lot of different regional interests. Um, even beyond that, the Whigs exist in part to support um, federal improvements, a, a relatively robust sort of national system uh, of regulation in a number of different respects. That party ultimately failed. It fell apart. Um, it was some. It was a lot of different kind of constituencies, and then when it fell apart, part of what um, its membership then gravitated towards the Republican Party. And I think uh, another thing it, it opposed was a very sort of ill-advised federal law at the time called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which had been sort of hatched by the Democratic Party, particularly Franklin Roosevelt. Excuse me, Franklin Pierce. Excuse me, um, Franklin Pierce's uh, effort to try and impose. Uh, popular sovereignty on new uh, territories, Kansas and Nebraska, that backfired, and ultimately a, uh, a, a really a civil war broke out in Kansas to some extent over that. And the Republican Party formed in part as a response to uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, as well as to oppose slavery, and ultimately it's going to become what we know it to, to be today. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, David, how important was Abraham Lincoln to the Republican Party? What was his constitutional vision, and what ultimately was his impact on the Constitution? Well, you know, I think it's safe to say his constitutional vision uh, evolved over time. I mean, you know, from the beginning, he was a wartime president in the most difficult war that our nation has ever fought, uh, the darkest days for the Republic since the uh, some of the dark days of the Revolution, where the very existence of the Revolution was about. I mean, there were there were moments when the outcome in the Civil War was very, very much in doubt. And so uh, in some ways, uh, you would look at Abraham Lincoln's time in the presidency, and you would not exactly say that he was the man who was the guardian of civil liberties. <laughs> he, um, you know, within the North, uh, he was uh, uh, known to essentially try to find every way that he could to exercise his executive authority to preserve the Union. Even up to an uh, up to suspending habeas corpus in certain certain circumstances, um, uh, using his executive authority as commander in chief to accomplish, uh, for example, the Emancipation Proclamation in, without uh, without you know without congressional approval. Uh, but at the same time, he had a long term goal that was going to uh, fundamentally reform the Constitution. Uh, the when we're talking about, you know, going back to the Gettysburg Address, this concept of the new birth of freedom, um, in some ways, the Civil War amendments, these, the the amendments that finally abolished involuntary servitude, extended the blessings of liberty to the citizens of the various states in a much more explicit way. Uh, that's the result of, uh, you know, a longer-term view of what America would be like after this terrible conflict was over. So I think it's if you're looking at Lincoln, unfortunately, he never got to be president. Uh, truly, you know, he never got to spend 
any real time as president uh, post-Civil War. But during the war, uh, constitutionally, many of his actions were extraordinarily controversial, given the existential threat to the existence of the Union. But he had a post-war vision of the Constitution that was, in many ways, this new birth of freedom. Uh, thanks for that. Mike, more on the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. How did they change the shape of the Constitution? What was the role of the Republican Party in passing the amendments? And what path did Republican control of Reconstruction put the party on? Well, by their very name, the Reconstruction Amendments were pretty radical. They were going to reconstruct America, particularly the Constitution. And they were very much the uh, uh, they were very much owned by the Republican Party. The Republican Party was really the major party on the scene at the time. To, to some extent, the Democrats had, had uh, sort of left office. Um, they, a lot of the Democrats seceded, um, went home. There weren't a lot of Democrats left around as a meaningful party uh, for um, a fairly long period after the uh, Civil War. But more importantly, or more to the point, um, the Republican Party then sort of uh, hit upon uh, the drafting of the, the Reconstruction Amendments, which are the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, the 14th Amendment, which guarantees every citizen of the United States the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States. It also uh, does something pretty radical in that it puts federal power on the side of opposing any state's violation of equal protection of the laws. It also forbids any state from depriving any citizen of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And those are radical things uh, at the time. And then the 15th Amendment grants political rights to the newly freed slaves and their descendants. So that was a very ambitious program. It was done, um, and uh, to get ratified, it, it was ratified in part because the federal um, troops were actually occupying the South, and they made sure that the South actually helped support these new amendments. So they were ratified. And then, uh, for the most part, Republican administrations for the last quarter of the 19th century were trying to implement those different uh, amendments, though at the same time the Republican Party was beginning to, I think, um, face some of the challenges of ruling and administration and to some extent also backed the withdrawal of the federal troops in the South and also ultimately dismantled some of the Reconstruction policies. And those, and those were some of the beginnings, I think, of what the Republican Party was going to become later in the 19th century and the early 20th century. Great. Well, David, let's take the story up. Uh, to the early uh, 20th century, as Mike said, part of the Compromise of 1876 was that uh, Hayes became president in exchange for the withdrawal of federal troops from the South. Uh, describe the animating principles of the Republican Party in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, in the election of 1912, I remember from my uh, Brandeis research, all three of the major candidates supported trust busting in, in various forms, although the uh, progressive uh, Theodore Roosevelt wanted to have big regulatory bodies that would oversee the big corporations, whereas uh, the, uh, the uh, William Howard Taft, the incumbent, wanted to prosecute the trusts, and Woodrow Wilson and Brandeis wanted to break up the trusts in the bank. To b basically, give us the big themes in the Republican Party um, during that period. Well, you know, one thing that's interesting about the Republican Party uh, is that you know, it, it went through a period of um, it went through a period of, of relative dominance uh, following the Civil War, and so you began to see splits within the Republican Party, in, in much the way that you see splits 
in a party, in, in any party that begins to achieve a, a certain level of dominance, it's, it's cobbling together an awful lot of constituencies. And as we just as was just discussed, you know, you have, for example, the um, uh, you have, for example, the radical Republicans who were very intent on um, uh, on a uh, you know going back to what I said earlier, this new birth of freedom in the Reconstruction era. Um, much more moderate. Then you have a, a more moderate faction that's wanting to reach an accommodation uh, with Southern Democrats, uh, resulting in the withdrawal of troops. So you, you have various strains. And interestingly enough, you know, one of the strains in, um, in Republican politics was a progressive strain um, that was, uh, um, you know, there was a, there was a strong move it's towards the end of the 20th century, uh, into the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, uh, towards progressive reforms, and Republicans led the way on a number of those. Uh, led the way on a number of those fronts, where much of the argument would be not on whether there would be uh, a progressive reform, but to what extent. So you're talking about, for example, Teddy Roosevelt, who had left the Republican Party, um, what was in, in was moving. Uh, Further than some Republicans wanted to go, uh, for example, in trust busting. But there was, uh, um, you know, this was a party that had ideological elements and uh, less ideological elements, including a progressive element. So, um, you know, that that period of time, it's kind of it's difficult, I'd say, to define that there is any one strain of thought that was stereotypically. Uh, and under uh, that would, would that would be considered to be stereotypically Republican. Uh, Mike, what uh, can you say about the strains in Republican thought during the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era? We know that uh, the election of 1896 of McKinley is seen as the resurgence of Republican dominance in American politics, uh, and the party after losing the election uh, in 1912 to Woodrow Wilson, got back the presidency in the 20s, running on opposition to the League of Nations, high tariffs, uh, the promotion of business interests. Tell us about uh, those uh, strains and, and how, the, how the Republican Party emerged. Uh, sure. Well, so I th- it's another thing to keep in mind, is, well, actually, there are a few things to keep in mind. One is, I think even during the latter part of the 19th century, to some extent, um, the Republican Party still tried to be the party of a sort of what we'll call pro-civil rights, um, because they were they had taken ownership over the Reconstruction Amendments. Now that their ownership began to sort of loosen to some extent, their intensity over it sort of loosened at the same time that it became a party that becomes associated with big business. And beyond that, um, I think the Republican Party, um, as David was pointing out, I think these sometimes come to problems of sort of what do you do once you begin to govern? When you're on the sidelines, this means one thing, but when you're actually in government, when you're governing, which the Republican Party was doing for quite a long time, it's it's got to develop a relatively complex uh, um, system of thought, and that was very difficult in a party that had brought together such disparate elements. Um, and so, by the early 20th century, I think the Republican Party was having uh, was facing a number of challenges, and one of the challenges had to do with uh, uh, federal power, uh, how. How robustly do we, do we support sort of um, robust or strong sort of uh, federal enactments which might regulate different different things like labor or commerce? Um, and I, I think ultimately um, in the in the early 20th century, particularly in Harding and Coolidge, um, the, the Republican presidents there were actually 
not as supportive of a strong uh, federal regulatory um, government. Um, and that that actually, you might, there you might begin to see some of the seeds of the modern Republican Party uh, begin to emerge. Uh, interesting. David, can you tell us more about this uh, relationship between um, support of limited or strong federal power to the Republicans? I, I, I don't know if we want to trace it back to the Hamilton Jefferson uh, debate, where Hamilton, of course, supported a stronger national government than Jefferson. Is it too simplistic to say that the uh, basically the Democrats had been the uh, party of limited uh, government and, and that somehow switched uh, around the New Deal era? Well, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, certainly there was a, um, a sharp split between Democrats and Republicans in the New, New Deal era. I, I, and, and certainly going back before the New Deal era, if you want to talk about uh, the Republicans versus the Democrats uh, in the pre-Civil War and the post-Civil War era, the Republicans were much more, uh, as the party of union, the, uh, the party of a, uh, of a strong federal government, strong central government, but then later on switch, um, you know, during the New Deal era to being much more in favor of economic, uh, economic rights, uh, uh, and much more opposed to the the, the Roosevelt program. Uh, there's you know been an ebb and flow throughout history, but I think it's in the New Deal era that we're beginning to see some some of these more modern contours emerge. You know, when you have a challenge, when you have an economic challenge, where do you first look to resolve that economic challenge? Do you look at uh, the federal government to even out the business cycle to provide the right, uh, the right kind of stimulus? Uh, do you look to the federal government to provide jobs? Do you look to the federal government to provide, uh, you know, to, to, to provide the economic boost that the economy needs? Or are you looking more towards private enterprise? Or are you looking more towards uh, safeguarding the, the, uh, the market as the primary force for uh, economic progress? And that, that's when you're beginning to see more of that divide that, that we see today, certainly along the lines of, uh, you know, different view of the role of the government and the economy. Interesting. Mike, just one more beat about how that switch took place. As David said, as during the progressive era, uh, both uh, Taft and Roosevelt considered themselves progressive uh, conservatives. Was it mostly in reaction to the New Deal that the Republicans became the party of limited uh, government, or were there other forces at work? Well, I, I mean, it's probably always safe to say other forces were at work. I, I, the New Deal, in a sense, sort of ups the ante, so the stakes get a lot bigger. Um, and Franklin Roosevelt certainly had a vision in the Democratic Party at that time, begins to do something he hadn't really done before, which was to rally around a very strong federal government uh, and actually strong courts uh, as well, or at least courts that would be um, kind of basically aligned with their uh, political and, and uh, constitutional views. Um, and, and so the Republicans, to some extent, are beginning to respond to that as well, Though I might sort of just tag another theme that I think is sort of an undercurrent throughout much of our history. So we go back to Lincoln, and one thing that may be worth pointing out is that Lincoln began as a Whig. And as a Whig, one thing he would have believed in was actually a, um, deferring to Congress. He would have believed that the president should defer to Congress in making policy for the nation. So that's an interesting concept about executive power. Um, Ultimately, uh, that, that Whig conception, I think, of executive power is going to fall away. And by the 20th century, you're going to not just have different attitudes about how uh, robust should Congress be, but in a sense, how strong should the president be? 
and that's going to also emerge as a 21st century issue. Great. Okay, we're now uh, well into the 20th century, and David, take us up through uh, the next defining moment. Uh, perhaps that would be the Goldwater uh, campaign in 1964, uh, a key part of Goldwater's argument focused on the Supreme Court and the overreaching, uh, as he called it, of the Warren Court. Uh, he believed the federal judiciary had become too big and that the federal government had become too big. So how did uh, that develop, and uh, what was its significance? Well, yeah, the the, the Goldwater Revolution uh, in 1964, a lot of people would say that, that that laid the foundation for what was, until 2016, uh, the modern Republican Party centered um, to a greater or less degree around a uh, limited government argument and specifically around a particular argument about the Constitution uh, and that the Constitution is um, that, that, the, uh, that, that the Democrats, and in essence, abandoned sort of looking at the Constitution as a uh, limiting force and instead looked at the Constitution as an enabling force in the expansion and increase in the size and scope of the government. And uh, you know, when when you had the Goldwater Revolution, it was a it was an ideological response to a, a a party that, in a lot of ways, although it had ideological differences uh, with the Democrats, were not those differences were not necessarily all that profound. I mean, um, it, you know, there was it was far from a foregone conclusion, for example, that Dwight D. Eisenhower, the two-term president and uh, former Supreme Commander of Allied Forces in Europe. Far from foregone conclusion that he was a, a natural Republican in the way that we'd think of a Republican, um, you know, uh, uh, today, and he he had uh, governed uh, from very much sort of a center center right perspective. You wouldn't think of Eisenhower today as a terribly ideological president, um, and uh, but along comes Goldwater, and and really strikes a blow at what has become stereotyped today as sort of the Northeastern WASP country club Republicanism and uh, centers it around a very particular Republicanism uh, around a particular set of ideas about the Constitution. And ultimately, Ronald Reagan ends up taking up that mantle. Um, Nixon wasn't truly a, a Goldwater uh, Republican. Uh, he was by no means a, uh, a small government Republican. This was a guy who implemented, you know, wage and price controls, for example. Uh, but it was Reagan who ultimately, and was seen to have sort of completed that Goldwater Revolution, uh, creating a Republican Party centered around, sort of, uh, as you've heard, the three legs of the Republican stool for a long time were uh, viewed to be uh, strong national security, uh, free market economics. And a, uh, a a social conservative view uh, around protecting the fam the primacy of the family, uh, and that's that's the those are the ideological heirs of that Goldwater Revolution uh, that changed the Republican Party, but delivered a resounding electoral victory um, to to the Democrats. Very interesting. So, Mike, uh, d uh, take us through that evolution from Goldwater to Nixon to Reagan. Uh, in, in in another deep dive, as, as David said, Nixon was not a Goldwater Republican, although he did expand Goldwater's critique of the Supreme Court, denouncing the rising crime rates and the race riots, as he called them, that were prevalent around 1968. Uh, he also embraced the so-called Southern 
strategy. Uh, tell us about that and, and tell us how the Republican Party moved uh, f to embrace uh, the, those three stools that David talked about by the time of Ronald Reagan. So, uh, of course, the other thing that's happening when Nixon comes into office uh, is, uh, is that the, um, the Republican administration at that point, particularly the Republican president and the Republican Party, they're also to some extent uh, benefiting from and responding to what happened in the 1960s when the Democratic Party embraced um, a very uh, strong civil rights legislation. So in 1964, Lyndon Johnson signs the 1964 Civil Rights Act into law, one of the most significant civil rights laws in American history. There's the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and Johnson's going to famously say at the time, we've lost a generation by doing this. Johnson himself, a Texan, understood that these would not play well in the South, among other things. So if the Democrats are losing the South, the question becomes, where, where does the South go? Well, it goes to the Republican Party, which is going to take full advantage of it. At the same time, as David points out, the Republican Party embraces a different conception of judicial power. Uh, it's responding to what it considers to be, uh, to use its phrase, the liberal activism of the Warren Court in the 1950s and 1960s. The Warren Court decided the famous case of Brown versus Board of Education, which desegregates public schools throughout the country, schools that are segregated on the basis of race explicitly by state law, um, and also then deciding a number of cases, this is the Warren Court, deciding a number of cases that are going to strengthen the court's own power of judicial review at the expense of the states. It's going to recognize that federal rights um, actually apply throughout the entire country, and states have to comply with all sorts of federal rights, which heretofore states didn't think they had to comply with, like, for example, those relating to criminal procedure. So there's a revolution to some extent going on in the 1960s. Republicans are going to take full advantage of that. And by the time Nixon, so one thing Nixon is going to do is he's going to get several Supreme Court appointments, and his hope is to reverse some of that revolution that had happened in the 1950s, 90s, 1960s. Uh, by Democratic appointees. Um, it will succeed to some extent, but not to its full extent. And I think when later, when we see um, President Reagan come into office, he's going to learn from Nixon's failures. He's going to try and find a more sophisticated way to pick judges to ensure that we can undo that revolution that occurred in the 1950s and 60s, make the court, court more humble, let's say, make it less likely to embrace its power at the expense of the states. Uh, and that's a very important part of President Reagan's legacy. And at the same time, not necessarily embrace as full a scope of federal power as the Democrats would have embraced. And I think uh, Reagan's success itself feeds on, it feeds on itself, and that, of course, then leads to um, a third term as vice president, George H.W. Bush, comes into office. I think largely trying to follow that, but then he, to some extent he makes the mistake of not just compromising, with the other side, but compromising some principles, including raising taxes. And that becomes, I think, uh, another important principle for the party, which is we're not going to raise taxes. So we add that, in a sense, to the quiver. It's another principle the party is going to have coming into the present. Many thanks for that. Uh, David, tell us more about Ronald Reagan's constitutional vision. Opposition to judge-created abortion rights, a particular view of religious liberty, the colorblind constitution, uh, spell this out, and how does it how has it continued to define the Republican Party uh, for decades after? Well, you know, there's there's a couple of words that are uh, that have entered our lexicon since that time that I think that are really important. One is the notion of an originalist 
uh, view of the Constitution, in other words, to read the read the Constitution as the fa- uh, according to the the will and intent of the founders uh, and the and the drafters, the people who, who wrote the Constitution. So there's a search at this time for originalist judges uh, who will not be activists. Now, the term originalist, I think, is is a word that's you know reasonably precise and reasonably easy to define. Uh, the word activist, though, I think, is broad enough almost to be meaningless. It can be appropriated by either side. So are you, uh, in the way the, the, the way Reagan and others would define activists, was they be, would be talking about, for example, the uh, liberal justices who had carved out a number of procedural rights on behalf of, of criminal defendants. They would say, well, that's activist. Uh, but liberal critics would look at, say, a conservative judge who struck down an act of Congress and say, well, isn't that being activist and striking down the act of Congress? But for a time, these words, originalist judges who are not activists, would be a, a shorthand way of describing what Ronald Reagan was, was looking for in the federal judiciary as a way of limiting the power uh, of the federal government uh, and also limiting the ability of judges to create these judge-created rights. Um, he was not nearly as successful uh, in that effort as he intended to be. And, I, and I, they, here you reach a, a really pivotal moment in American constitutional history, which was the rejection of Judge Bork. Um, the court would look very different today had uh, Judge Bork become, uh, had Judge Bork been confirmed. And on a couple of counts. Number one, uh, obviously the force of Judge Bork's personality and thinking itself, he was uh, a, formo, a, a, a formidable legal mind, a formidable conservative scholar. Um, so when he was eliminated uh, from contention for the Supreme Court, it, that, that alone, of course, substantially affected the court. The other thing is the aftershocks of that meant that uh, Republican presidents going forward were in this uh, effort to try to nominate a conservative judge, but one who is not so conservative as to replicate the borking of Judge Bork. And so that meant that uh, Republican Republican uh, presidents began to gamble a bit on their uh, judicial nominations, selecting people perhaps with records who are a little bit more opaque, a little less well-known, hoping that, um, you know, hoping that things would pan out. And then Justice Souter, which was a George H.W. Bush appointee, uh, he turned out to be, from the standpoint of conservatives, he turned out to be a quite a disappointment, uh, somewhat progressive. Um, in fact, there are those who would say that going all the way back to Reagan, uh, the Republican judges, uh, ju- the Republican presidents have batted about 500 on uh, finding judges who would be both originalist and committed to pairing back judicial activism. Interesting. Mike, why did uh, constitutionalism become so central to the Republican program? Uh, do you agree with David that the record was about five, 50 percent? That sounds like a fair estimation. But more broadly, I, I want to understand why did the courts become so important to uh, Republicans and how successful were they in pursuing their agenda in the courts? Uh, it's a very important question. I think uh, they actually the court ends up becoming important to everybody. Um, the, so that's one short answer. Um, a longer answer is that one thing that's changing in the, in the story that we've been uh, sort of um, telling is that the courts um, are becoming more powerful over time. 
they're actually stepping into uh, more cases than the courts have stepped into um, prior to uh, the 1950s. Uh, so when we talked about that Warren Court sort of um, record, uh, one of the things Warren Court's doing is it's striking down lots of federal laws and it's striking down lots of state laws. One could maybe call that activism. It also um, introduces uh, a couple things. One of them is, just to add another important phrase to the lexicon David's talking about, is the, the notion of judicial restraint, which I think Republicans are going to try to own, and that is uh, to restrain um, your decision-making from being based on your own personal values and instead base it on law. And the law uh, for uh, Republicans, uh, at least in theory, is going to be um, the text of the Constitution and the original meaning of the Constitution. Um, and then, uh, so uh, given the, let's say, the activism of the Warren Court in striking down so many things, judicial restraint might lead one to think, okay, the court won't be quite so active. And then at the same time, what's happening, I think, is the recognition that if the court is going to be that pivotal, we, that is to say, any party, want to control it. So if it, um, William Brennan was a, uh, a Republican appointee by President Eisenhower, but a great disappointment to him, he used to say the most important concept in constitutional law is to be able, essentially to be able to count to five. Because if you get five people in the Supreme Court, you decide a case. Well, everybody learns that lesson. Every, uh, Republicans learn it, Democrats learn it. So then there's a recognition, even coming before Bork, that if we can control the court, then perhaps it's going to end up upholding the laws we like and striking down the laws we don't like. And that's going to become a, a widespread sort of uh, understanding that I think both parties um, take to heart. Uh, David, what's your uh, response to that, that uh, essentially both parties come to care a lot about the courts, and rather than having an independent commitment to restraint, uh, Mike suggests that both parties want to use the court to uphold laws they like and strike down those they don't? Well, I, I would say that uh, what you have are two competing judicial philosophies that uh, end up with the result of tending to hold up uh, uh, hold up laws that you like and striking down those that don't. One, you know, that on the left you have a notion that uh, the Constitution. You've heard this phrase, the living Constitution. That the meaning of the Constitution is. Um, is, is really something to be interpreted and applied according to specific mores of our time. And that, uh, that the, what the founders did is they created a document. And this, this is actually goes back to something I was taught pre rather emphatically in law school. This was early 90s when I was in law school, that, um, that this is a document that it articulates basically certain principles towards liberty, towards equality, towards privacy, towards uh, justice, civil rights, etc. And so therefore, um, in essence, what this Constitution is doing is is kind of pushing history in a particular direction. Um, and whereas the, the conservative response is, no, this is a document with a, with a fixed and defined meaning. If you want to expand the amount of rights that Americans have, or if you um, there's a there's a process for doing that, either a constitutional amendment or passing a statute that can pass constitutional muster. The end result of that is um, you end up with sharp divisions in not just in what the Constitution means, but also sharp divisions, uh, at least in theory, about what the government is capable of doing, what the what business the government can even be in in the first place. And and you saw a lot of that play out in the Obamacare debate, uh, the the constitutional side of the Obamacare debate, where in essence the one side said, look. Um, 
you read that doc, you read that text, you read that document, and you're just not going to find anywhere in there express or even reasonably implied this notion that the federal government can say that you're going to be required to purchase a particular commercial product. Um, whereas the other side was saying that that's utterly absurd to look at major pieces of social legislation through the lens of um, through the lens of an eight, you know, an 18th century document, they couldn't even conceive of something like this. Instead, let's look at the basic underlying principles that are embodied in the document. They're not at all in conflict, and in fact, um, they're advanced by this piece of legislation. And so, you begin to see in that one case a lot of the fundamental differences that people have as they look at the Constitution and as they think about the Constitution. And it was that loss in the Obamacare case. I would, I would argue that disillusioned uh, a number of Republicans uh, re- regarding the, the value or the, uh, the real-world value, the real-world effectiveness of their, uh, quote-unquote, constitutionalist approach, that they could be constitutionalists all day long, but they were just going to lose. And uh, that created an enormous amount of disillusion on the right. Very interesting indeed. Mike, how did a political party become committed to constitutionalism, which by definition involves the pursuit of an agenda through the courts. I, I, my, my question is, did this have a, a broad uh, popular appeal, this focus on a particular constitutional agenda and a limited view of federal power, or was it focused more on Republican elites? Well, I think the, the hope um, certainly was that it would have broad appeal. It's also not a new idea. Um, it's it's one that we can, we've we've uh, really encountered throughout all of American history. If we even go back to earlier in the Republican Party's history, one of the differences between Teddy Roosevelt and uh, uh, William Harry Taft, two Republicans, is they approached the constitutional text very differently. Roosevelt believed that essentially he could do whatever he wanted to do, or the government could do whatever he wanted to do, as long as it wasn't expressly prohibited. And Taft took almost exactly the opposite approach, which is you can only do it if it's explicitly authorized. Well, that's that's radically different, um, and you come up and you end up in very different places. But one thing that's all, so that's one theme right there is which which of those two paths do you follow. The other thing which I want to sort of introduce um, to the conversation, which I think is an important part of judging, is what's the role of precedent. Um, and I think that the if you're a constitutionalist and you have a theory of the Constitution, it you have a very big challenge when you're confronting prior decisions of the Supreme Court, and that's something a number of these judges, whether they're Democrat or Republicans, have had to confront, whether it's in the Obamacare case or any other case. Um, the court has always got a number of prior decisions which are arguably relevant in much of the discussion in any given constitutional cases, which of those cases is most relevant. And so that takes us away from ideology and theory into the very, just to the concrete world of practice. And I think this is, and that concrete world practice, I think, has been very difficult to control through the judicial nomination process by both parties. Thanks for that. Uh, David, I want to go back and take one beat on uh, the current Republican Party. We are obviously having a, a convention, which is taking place this week. And to what degree have the principles that you attributed to Ronald Reagan and have defined the party, those three stools you talked about, to what degree do they continue to define the party uh, during our current constitutional debates? Well, I think it's safe to say that the uh, current, that the notion that the, the Republican Party, the GOP institutionally, is, a con- is dedicated to constitutionalism, 
is getting close to extinct. Um, the 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 nominee of the party uh, believes that judges sign bills, uh, for example. So I'm not sure that uh, that he has all that concern or interest in originalism, in the living the debate over the living constitution, in textualism. Uh, you name it. It's it's much more of an emphasis over quite simply wins and losses. Who's who's going to win? Who's going to impose their impose their agenda? Um, and and I think that from the standpoint of the Republican constitutionalists, it's an extraordinarily unfortunate turn of events because uh, constitutionalism, uh, at its most consistent, essentially says, look, that um, the federal government is. There, there is a there is a level in which whether or not a policy is good or bad is irrelevant. That that the question is is it constitutional? Is it not constitutional? And then that will leave to the states the opportunity in this great laboratory of democracy known as federalism, the opportunity themselves to create their own policy solutions to the different issues that plague the different states. Uh, we're not you know we're one nation, but we're not. Uh, not all the states are the same, and not all the demographics, and not all the problems in the states are the same. And so, constitutionalism empowers constitutionalism empowers federalism as the uh, as the founders intended, and, and empowers as a great laboratory of democracy. Uh, and I think that, that that there's real concern that that's either dying or dead now. That in essence, what we're going to talk about are are really um, the 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 GOP concern would be that the party is essentially becoming um, a a party of, of power, not constitutional principle, and that the uh, uh, nomination of Donald Trump is is an ultimate declaration that okay, well, what we're what we're seeking now is a um, is an assertion of power over the process, uh, and that any other previous assertions, uh, any other previous principles such as constitutionalism. Just failed. Uh, it's they lost. That their time has come and gone, and now it's uh, it's more of a uh, almost a Nietzschean will to power mindset that you see in support of the current nominee. Uh, powerful observation, uh, Mike. In a nonpartisan and descriptive spirit, how would you describe the current debates within the Republican Party about the role of the Constitution and limited government? I think these are, I don't mean to be flippant saying this to some extent these are growing pains. I mean I think um what we I think what we're seeing before us is um is a reflection of and a continuation of something that's just been part of our history from the very beginning. There have been fights over the constitution and how to interpret it uh, from day 1. And the very name Republican which is uh, you know, uh, in the party's uh, title, the Republican Party, comes from Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party, which to some extent was a party that um, supported uh, stronger state rights and a, and a weaker federal government. And to some extent, you can see the party maybe perhaps trying to come back around even to that basic notion. But but that we're well more than 200 years since then. So over that time period, things evolve, they change. Um, they get more complex, and theories get uh, usually get decimated by the complexities of life. I think, if I could say that, um, and I think that's to some extent what's happening is that the party has to grapple with not just so the highfalutin theory, the abstract theory, but concretely what not only do are the things we stand for, but how do we govern once we actually do get into power? What are the things we're actually going to do? And 
politics, as we all know, is the art of compromise. So the question becomes, what are those things we're going to compromise in the course of governing? And that's something we've been fighting about for a long time. I expect the Republican Party will continue to fight over it. And I don't think it's a fight that is absent from the Democratic Party either. Thanks for that. All right, it's time, gentlemen, for closing arguments in this really fascinating conversation. David, uh, what would you like to leave our audience with about the role of the Constitution in the Republican Party over time? Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's fascinating to see how, um, how parties change in response to events. Um, you know, you can, have a, you can have a party that begins centered around and animated by opposition to slavery, um, then moving past the Civil War into uh, the radical Republicans seeking uh, reconstruction in the fullest sense, essentially a new birth of freedom or uh, a reformation of the entire American experiment that expunges the stain of slavery, um, and then largely forgetting that vision for a very, very long time. Um, and then uh, the party um, centering itself around a, a constitutional vision in the 20th century that is a reaction not just to um, you know, events here at home, but also abroad, one thing that we didn't talk about very much was uh, the, the challenge of the Soviet Union in the Cold War and uh, the, the Republican Party and its view of the, the uh, president as the commander-in-chief and its view of the president's role in national security. So again and again, you see the, the party actually uh, making changes and, and responding to world events and changing over time to the point where, much like the Democratic Party, you can't say that there is one fixed Republican view of the Constitution that has stood the test of time. Instead, the party has changed, its view of the Constitution has changed, and it's uh, up to this generation and future generations to judge the merits of those changes. Thanks very much for that. Mike, your closing argument about the relationship between the Constitution and the Republican Party over time. Well, the relationship between the Republican Party and the Constitution was, was there at its very beginning. Um, and it, it, it was most evident, and still is clearly evident, from the great president who sort of came into office in 1861, it, its first uh, standard bearer in the Oval Office, Abraham Lincoln. We call it the Party of Lincoln, um, and its commitment, as David has pointed out, to uh, not to, not just to the Reconstruction Amendments and civil rights, but to oppose slavery. The ideals that it stood for, I think, are its roots. But like anything else that has roots, it will grow. And this is partly what we're witnessing now. Is it has grown in different ways, and this is what happens when you breathe life into it and when you have constituents who have themselves different views of the Constitution and different political preferences. So the Republican Party has become a bigger tent to some extent, but that means trying to keep many different kinds of constituencies together. As I said before, I think the Democrats are not immune to that either. So to some extent, what we might be seeing before is, is really a challenge to uh, uh, maybe even the very notion of what the Republican Party stands for, and and perhaps at some point we may see the same challenge again happen to the Democrats. The Democrats have been through that before, um, and I have a feeling the party of Lincoln will will be fine. And I think that uh, because it has it has a, one of the greatest presidents, one of the great uh, whose great constitutional vision I think is still embraced by so many people um, as its ideal, and that's I think what we're going to see the party try and reach for over the next year, if not beyond. 
Thank you very much, David French and Mike Gerhardt, for an illuminating, surprising, and historically rooted conversation about the relationship between the Republican Party and the Constitution. Uh, we'll continue this great series next week with a discussion about the Democratic Party and the Constitution. Uh, but for now, I just want to thank you for your insights and thoughtful commentary. David, Mike, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's a great honor. Thanks again for having us. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg and Tom Donnelly. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash constitution CTR, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com forward slash constitution CTR. Please subscribe to We the People and also to our sibling podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes or on your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. As you all know, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And yet, despite our inspiring congressional charter, I need to repeat that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen. <laughs>